Welcome back. Just a quick update on the situation in Zaporizhia that we talked about off the top of the show, a nuclear power plant, the largest in Europe, um, on fire, or at least being attacked by Russian troops. Um, Jennifer Granholm, who's the U.S. Energy Secretary, says we've seen no elevated radiation readings near the facility. The plant's reactors are protected by robust containment structures and reactors are being safely shut down. The latest from Jennifer Granholm. She's the American Energy Secretary tonight. Well, one week into the war, things in Ukraine certainly have not gone according to plan, or at least the plan we thought Vladimir Putin might have. Uh, he hoped it might be a quick war. It has not been. He hoped to take over major cities such as Kiev and Kharkiv uh, and install a puppet, puppet government. He has not. So what might that mean for the future? And where were the mistakes made? Joining me now is Alan Sens. He's a professor of political science at the University of British Columbia with a focus on armed conflict and international security. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Thanks for having me. You know, just a little over a week ago, I think we were all thinking about war. Um, not many of us, or not all of us, had predicted there would be one. One week in, what has struck you the most about the first seven days of the Ukrainian war? Well, I think there's several things. I think, first of all, the um, extent and determination of Ukrainian resistance. It's been extremely high, and the capacity of the Ukrainian army and even the Ukrainian Air Force, which was initially thought swept from the skies early on, uh, to demonstrate a great deal of resilience in the face of superior firepower and superior numbers. So I think we're once again seeing how important morale is in the larger equation of military outcomes. I think a second piece that I would um, refer to is we're also seeing signs that there was a disconnect in Russian political objectives and Russian military planning. I'm of the view that Russian military planners would have gamed out a scenario in which Ukrainian resistance to a Russian invasion was quite high. They would have presented a range of options, one of which would have included a quick victory option or possibility. But I think what happened is that the political leadership, the um, Putin inner circle, quickly seized on the quick victory scenario, believing they could seize Ukraine in a, in a relatively bloodless coup de main, overthrow the Zelensky government, install a puppet government, and achieve their goal of reabsorbing Ukraine into Russian orbit. Um, I think that drove their military strategy, which was not to use overwhelming firepower early on and to try these swift advances into Ukraine, which were defeated, or at least seriously damaged and slowed down by Ukrainian resistance. Now, what they've had to do is they've had to pivot probably to another war plan in which Ukrainian resistance was quite high. But in doing so, they lost the opportunity to deliver early knockout blows to the Ukrainian military. And as a result, the Ukrainian military had time to adjust, to mobilize, and to prepare. And now we find ourselves in a situation where although the Russian military is still making advances around the country, they are certainly slower than might have otherwise been expected. How much has the international response helped Ukraine in its adaption or in its adaptation, or has Ukraine very much been on their own so far? I think there's been a really strong interaction between Ukrainian resistance and the international reaction, in addition to fighting for their homelands. The Ukrainians are also fighting for time. 
They're fighting for time for the political uh, uh, context around the world to turn against Russia. They've been waiting for time to receive the weapons they've been promised. And they're fighting for time to hope that the sanctions will bite against the Russian regime in the hopes I don't think anyone yet dares to believe that sanctions will somehow overthrow the Putin government, but I think they do dare to believe that the sanctions will bite to an extent that the Russian government will feel it has to broaden its range of possibilities in negotiations with Ukraine going forward. I think those things have really driven the uh, process together. The international response has been robust. It has been very cohesive. It has been very unified. But that has interacted with the Ukrainian will to resist. And now together, those two things have become mutually reinforcing. I know that Vladimir Putin and French President Francois Macron, uh, Emmanuel Macron rather, had a uh, conversation today in which uh, Vladimir Putin certainly didn't seem like someone who was ready to back away from this war. Uh, And in a message to his own people tonight, he talked about the successes of this war so far, and then reiterated uh, the reasonings that he had given before. Is there a reason why Vladimir Putin seems to not have yet recognized, or or is he just pretending not to recognize what a what a failure the first week has been? I think what we're seeing is the depth of the motive that Putin himself and likely his inner circle has felt uh, about Ukraine all along. This is part of a much broader effort, uh, extending well over a decade now, to try to reassert Russian influence and power in a region they call the near abroad. That is to say, the territories of the former Soviet socialist republics like Ukraine and the territories of Eastern and Central Europe. And in the case of Ukraine, a desire to bring Ukraine back into the Russian orbit. And part of that, of course, driven by a belief that Russia and the Ukraine are not divisible, that they're, they're basically the same and ought to rightfully be together. And I think the depth of that conviction or delusion, you might want to call it, um, has been exposed that this recognition of the military challenges they are suddenly confronting has led not to a change in the Russian negotiating position, at least not yet. It has not led to a effort to draw back and control what they already have seized preparatory to perhaps a a negotiation, but in fact has led them to double down. They are now bringing in much more heavy equipment. They are now bringing in most of their uh, major firepower capabilities and firepower assets, both from the air and on the ground. They are now encircling Ukrainian uh, centers of resistance, including the big population centers like Kharkiv and Kiev. And it appears that they will attempt to lay those cities to siege, to bombard them, and hopefully win the war by... um, having these major cities uh, submit and surrender. And, you know, this is heading straight down the road of um, very high casualty and and, uh, for both sides and also a humanitarian crisis. And it's something we've seen 
in many other parts of the world. And we've certainly seen Russia carry sort this sort of attack out in places like Chechnya in the past and so on. I'm speaking with Alan Sens, professor of political science at the University of British Columbia, about a week into the war in Ukraine, what we've seen and what we may see ahead. It strikes me as, as almost incomprehensible that if the idea was to bring Ukraine black and back into the fold, so to speak, quickly at that, that then you would turn around and start bombarding their cities, essentially destroying their cities. It feels like if they're not going to be able to win hearts and minds, they're simply going to, that this has now moved into, uh, into sort of a scorched earth policy. Yes, and I think that's why the quick victory option was so compelling from the Russian perspective. It would enable them to overthrow the Zelensky government quickly. Um, there have been minimal dam- would have been minimal damage to the Ukrainian economy, infrastructure, the Ukrainian armed forces. A puppet government would have been able to assert control over the state apparatus relatively quickly, perhaps over most of the army as well. And you would have had a situation where the uh, Russian government will have achieved one of its core objectives in the reassertion of, of Russian imperium. Um, but what has happened now is that they have recognized that that quick victory option is not going to happen. It's clear that they have been taking casualties, although the exact numbers cannot be clear um, at this point. And it's also clear that their only option to victory now is going to deploy ever greater amounts of firepower. And of course, that means as you say, destroying a great deal of that which they were hoping to take over. So now there will be the overall recovery costs, as well as probably a lasting insurgency or partisan-style battle in Ukraine, even if they succeed. Because at the end of all this, we're still talking about an ongoing war. What is less talked about is whether or not there's going to be any kind of peace inside Ukraine even if the Russian military wins the conventional part of the battle. After that, there could still be armed resistance across the country. A very large occupation force might have to be left behind. It's difficult to envision any puppet government having any kind of legitimacy whatsoever amongst the Ukrainian people. So we're looking at the possibility of a very long occupation that is marked by ongoing violence even if the Russian military achieves its objectives. So it's really an extraordinary set of grim outcomes, even if the situation ends on terms that are relatively favorable to Russia's original war aims. I'm back with Alan Sens, Professor of Political Science at the University of British Columbia with a focus on armed conflict and international security. We've been talking about the first week of the war in Ukraine, the surprises, what may lay ahead, We've been talking about the resistance of the Ukrainian army, how good a fight they've put up, the fail that put up, the failures of the Russian army, or at least the failures of the political side of the of the planning to allow the military to execute a plan that would have worked. And where are we now, uh, Alan? There's been lots of calls now for new measures to better protect Ukraine from this escalation that we're seeing from Russia. Uh, one of them includes a no-fly zone. What are some of the options on the table, and and which of them are not going to happen? Do you think? Yeah, so let's start with the no-fly zone. Um, I have to say, when I first heard that idea, I actually cringed. Um, this is an extremely dangerous idea. We are, of course, used to seeing no-fly zones being established in certain contexts. And on the face of it, the idea can have a lot of merit. 
the whole idea is by imposing a no-fly zone, you prevent the air forces of one side from creating unacceptable conditions on the ground from a humanitarian perspective. The problem is that most of the cases that we've seen, the opposing air force is relatively weak and would not be able to um, put up a serious resistance. And in the case of the Russian air force, this is absolutely not the case. No fly zones have to be enforced. And in order to enforce a no-fly zone over parts or all of Ukraine would require the combat aircraft of the United States or NATO countries together in combat against the Russian Air Force. That is a shooting war. And that would bring NATO and the United States into a shooting war with the Russian Federation, a nuclear-armed state. Right from the very beginning of this crisis, Washington, other NATO capitals have been very clear. They will not be sending troops or aircraft to fight in Ukraine. And the reason for that is that one of the very great risks that we still confront in this world is that if two or more nuclear armed states come into conflict with one another, there is the prospect that that war could escalate to nuclear war or the possibility that a nuclear war could break out through miscalculation or accident. Nobody wants to see that happen. So that no-fly zone idea, I think, in this context, is an extremely bad one. Now, what, what can we do? I think the sanctions regimes can continue to be advanced. They will have an impact, although whether or not they'll have an impact quickly enough and in the ways that are hoped for is unclear at this point. But I think also President Zelensky said it pretty well himself. Um, we need weapons. And I think supplying the Ukrainian military with weapons is probably at this point our best offer uh, of support. It's quite clear that the Ukrainian army is fighting hard. They are still capable of organized military resistance. They are still capable of mounting localized counterattacks, though they may have lost the ability to engage in large-scale maneuver warfare. And it is unclear whether or not the Ukrainian Air Force is capable of anything more than uh, smaller sort of combat air patrol missions. I think it's quite likely at this point that the Russian Air Force has air superiority over at least parts, if not most, of Ukraine. That said, being able to have the supply of the types of weapons that are most effective for the Ukrainian army at this point, surface-to-air missiles and anti-tank missiles, is, I think, a very important part of any kind of lethal assistance that we provide. And of course, it's important to remember that we're now facing the largest refugee crisis in Europe since World War II, and that will involve a great deal of need and a great deal of support as well. And I think that's another way that countries will have to mobilize in order to try to both respond to this conflict, but also provide assistance to Ukraine and the Ukrainian people in as many different ways as we can. I know when these conflicts erupt, and it's just been seven days, really, since this war started, it feels like longer. It's just been seven days. Um, it's very difficult to take a breath and think, what next? But in the immediate future, what do you think lies ahead? 
So I think the immediate future, sadly, is rather grim. Unless there is some kind of negotiated breakthrough or an as yet unanticipated turn of events in Moscow, which causes a significant change in Russian war aims. I think what we are looking at is the slow but steady encirclement of Kyiv and Kharkiv and other cities in Ukraine. I think we'll see the slow but steady reduction in the combat effectiveness of the Ukrainian military as the constant tempo of operations, fatigue, casualties, and shortages of supplies and weapons and ammunition start to take hold. And I think we are going to start to see a repeat pattern that has been used by the Russian military before against stiff resistance in cities, places like Grozny and Aleppo, which is to say the mass use of firepower to reduce whole areas of cities, move in and control those areas, and then continue the bombardment and take the city eventually that way. The other possibility is that the cities will be encircled and starved out. And that, of course, will precipitate a major humanitarian crisis already. Food supplies, water supplies will be running low, medical supplies. There's the ever-present threat of the spread of disease that attends warfare and sieges of these kinds, in addition to all other sorts of difficulties and challenges that will fall on the most vulnerable Ukrainian citizens in these situations. And so I think, sadly, that is what we're going to see. We're going to see now the, the final phases of the military campaign uh, start to show themselves in the form of this kind type of siege warfare. Alan Sens, I appreciate your insight. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me.